Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders to kick this one off. I have a couple questions from my Facebook page that I'm going to address. Again, I put a call out last week for anybody that wanted to ask questions, have them answered on the podcast. They could do so. I might have to put an actual post up on Facebook, though, because it tends to get more attention when I actually post. I just haven't had a lot of time. It's been really rough lately because I spend most of my day basically for, for quote-unquote school now with this distance learning thing. I get up at 6 in the morning. We're supposed to be on the computer between 7 and 12 to answer emails and you know post lessons. I've been creating a lot of brand new things for my Google Google Classroom so that the kids have stuff that's interactive so I can actually teach it. Just, I won't bore everybody with the details, but let's just say I'm spending more time than ever parked right in front of a computer, answering emails, answering messages, trying to get a hold of parents, trying to get a hold of kids. So I've been exhausted at the end of the day. So instead of sitting down and answering emails, I've been kind of taking a break from the computer. So I apologize if I haven't gotten back to people. I know I'm behind on the emails. And let me just say, you know, I can only do so much, and I try to keep up as best I can, and I feel terribly when I start seeing messages build up, but it's it's gotten to the point that, unfortunately, with the nature of the way my job is right now, it's it's a lot more difficult to park myself in front of the computer for several hours answering questions. So I'm trying, but I will post one up on Facebook. Know that I do read everything. Sometimes I forget to, to put the little hearts down or respond. I'm trying to get better with it. But I will post something about Facebook asking for listener questions because I do want to do one of those listener episodes because I think they're a lot of fun. And they're questions, generally speaking, if one person has a question, there are probably 10 other people that have the exact same question. So it's I, I, every time I do one, I have people chime in like, oh, good, you answered that one for me. And, and I like the topic. Sometimes I have an answer. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's my opinion. Sometimes I feel like I have a really good factful answer. Is that even a word? Faculty, true, whatever. And they just, I, I don't know, they feel more organic to me, like we're actually having a discussion. That's kind of like what I like about the podcast uh, format is that it feels more natural, more like people having, you know, sitting around having a discussion about tarantulas. So anyway, first one is from Eric Topping. So here's my question. If you're taking them for an episode, my GBB leaves its bolus in an area that I can't get to without really messing up webs. Do I just leave it? It doesn't seem to be a problem. But I also can't see it very well. Um, I meant to do a video of this a while back, but long story short, GBB is obviously an arid species. If you're keeping them correctly, there's not a lot of moisture in that. You may have a moist corner, but they don't they don't need moisture like that. They have you give them a water dish, you can sprinkle some water on the webbing, they're fine. So you have a dry enclosure. So what that means is your chance of that bolus forming mold is probably slim in none. That said, you know, you do want to kind of get boluses out when you can. But my thing is, I see people that tear stuff apart trying to get to them and they kind of disrupt the whole spider, the whole environment of the spider. I've seen situations where somebody contacted me recently where like they thought there was a bolus in the den. Now, they're usually pretty good about bringing the food remains out of their dens, but they thought there was one in there. So they dug the whole thing up and cleaned it, which again, that's being extra cautious. At least you got the bolus out. There's no problems, but you just dug up its whole burrow and now has to reacclimate. So I think with the webbing species, a trick I use if uh, I, uh, number one, I'm assuming you have tongs. I, the majority of us are in the hobby get tongs very early on. They're incredibly useful for not usually not feeding. I'm not a big tong feeder, but for getting things out of the enclosure without putting your hands in potential harm's way. So what you want to do is get a pair of tongs. And with my heavy Weber's, I bought these for the plants, but I used to use regular scissors before. But I have the aquarium scissors that you can use to snip out like leaves of plants and everything. They're kind of curved. I found those are amazing for cutting out little sections of webbing. So for example, I went to clean out a water dish the other day in one of the enclosures. I can't remember who. It might have been my D. diamantiensis. And it had webbed all around the water dish. And then I was starting to web over top of it. So I really needed to free that water dish. It had some boluses around it. I need to get that stuff out of the way. So what I did was took my aquarium scissors and just carefully cut around maybe a half inch out from the water dish, a space of the webbing. So I didn't disturb probably 95% of the spider's webbing. But what I did do is carefully cut that place out and then I could take the water dish out with the webbing around it that had boluses because a lot of times I'll drop them in or around water dishes, got that out of the way, scooped up the remaining couple of boluses that were around there and then put the new water dish in. So that's a trick that I've used for the heavy webbers when you want to keep things super clean because I know I've got a GBB that does the exact same thing. What she'll do is she'll lay a bolus down or drop a bolus down and then web over top of it before I can get to the bolus. So by the time I open up the cage, I go to feed her, I go to clean the water dish, I look and it's like, oh, there's a bolus in that corner and she's webbed over it already. So then that's where I find that's a good method to go through, snip out the webbing 
get the webbing out of the way, and then you can clean the bolus out. And generally, they'll keep going to that area, so you're usually only doing one area. I found that that's one of the things that's kind of surprised me over the years of keeping these guys is a lot of them have their little garbage dumps, their little areas where they're going to – I've got some that will even poop and drop the boluses in one particular corner, which makes it very, very convenient. So my thought would be, Eric, if you can – and I don't know which size. I don't think I'm looking at the comment here. It doesn't – I don't think you said what size. I'm picturing an adult, but even if it's a sling – it can be tricky. They they do that. I mean, it's one of the things I've I've had them do, and especially the GBB or any of the heavy Weber, heavy Webers. The other one I've had to do it with, which really gets the blood pressure going, was my OBT, my P Murinus. That one does. She does the same thing, although she's very very laid back. The last time I was in there with the scissors, she just calmly turned around, hidden her den. It was beautiful. So I my trick again, pick up a quart. You can get them on Amazon. Uh, I think I spent like ten bucks, twelve bucks for the aquarium scissors and a couple sets of tongs. I forget. It was rather inexpensive. It might have been up to 20. I'll double check. But they're so handy to have with the heavy heavy Webers because you can just go right in there, snip out the spots. For some reason, the web doesn't really stick to them, so it's not like you're pulling out huge chunks of webbing. You leave most of the webbing intact and just remove the area that's causing problem. Actually, what was the other one? The Epacipus was the one I used it with. I have two Epacipus, and they tend to... Awesome species if you can find them. Nobody can find them anywhere right now. But the two females web up extensively up top, and they have a terrible habit of webbing not only their water dishes, but their boluses. Like I found a a stash of boluses the other day that was like, where did those come from? So I did the same technique. Just use the scissors, trim it up. It allows you to remove things without disturbing the webbing too much. So that's my tip. And then again, with, with boluses and things of that nature... You always have to take into consideration how much of a threat they actually pose. If there's a situation where you don't feel like you can safely get the bolus out, leave it for the time being. There's always going to be another opportunity down the road. So I don't freak. I try to get them all out. It's one of my part of my feeding rituals is I get the spiders out. I change the water dishes. I feed them. I look around for boluses. Every once in a while, one of them, I'll miss one or something, and it's usually not a big deal. The only time it becomes a problem is when you have, especially moisture-dependent species, the boluses, you'll pour water in to obviously rehydrate the substrate. You'll moisten down some of those boluses, and that's when you start getting the little fluffy mold and stuff of that nature, and we really don't want that. So, And, and then if in a situation, I've also had situations where people have contacted me where they don't have the arid setups, they have the moist setups, and the bolus starts getting moldy, and they're like, do I need to rehouse? No. Use a spoon scoop out the area, the offending, scoop out the bolus, scoop out the dirt or substrate around it and any mold, clean that area up. Sometimes I even put in some new dirt over top of it and you should be fine. Don't freak out over that. So hopefully that covers it for you, Eric. I, I, hopefully it's just, again, I'm trying to, I'm picturing a larger adult that's webbed over some of those boluses that you can see. Again, the trick is using the tongs and getting a pair of those scissors. I, I, have, I should do something like a video or something about tools that keepers should have because these are definitely tools that have come in very very, very handy, these aquarium scissors. So next one, we have kind of a short question from Rockhound, but I, I think it, it it's one of those ones that comes up quite a bit, and I've had it come up quite a bit on my videos, and I think people don't know how these things work sometimes. They hear somebody say it, they say it's a good idea, and I'm glad that she asked this question. Rockhound asks, is a curly hair's enclosure too dry for springtails? This is a tricky one. Because it depends on how you're keeping your curly hair, your T. albopelosis, I believe it is now. That one changed twice on us in the last few months. Here's the deal. If it's a moisture, a moist enclosure, because I do think some people, I do keep a moist corner for my T. albos now. I have a Nicaraguan, and I think I have two of the Honduran. I can't remember what it is anymore. Dominican, Honduran curly hairs, the one that they call hobby form, whatever. But I've always kept the part of the enclosure moist. I let it dry out in between. But here's the thing with springtails. They need moisture. And I I get this a lot on videos where people come on, especially older ones where I talk about mold. And they come on and go, yeah, you need to throw some springtails in there. Those are great. And they don't realize it's it's an arid enclosure. Like the springtails need moisture. And quite frankly, I've found that with the springtails, you can let things dry out a little bit, but they need to have spots that they can hide beneath that will stay moist. So I like using, for example, if you use leaf litter in your enclosures, they love that. They get right underneath it. If you move the leaf litter, you see them all swarming underneath. They do very, very well, but they do need it moist. So it comes down to springtails aren't the fix-all for everything that people like to pretend. They're awesome. And I use them in just about all, I use them in all my moisture-dependent enclosures. 
but they're not usually appropriate for dryer enclosures. So if you have an enclosure that you like letting dry out completely in between, they're not going to appreciate appreciate that. What you'll end up with is probably a lot of them dying off, some of them ending up under the water dish. Anytime the enclosure dries out, like the majority of the enclosure dries out, they'll basically hide in a spot where there's moisture. So you'll find them like under a water dish, around the edges of the cork bark where there's still some moisture underneath. But they don't do particularly well in dry environments. They're not meant to be in dry environments. I have a culture of them and it's kept very, very moist. They do great. They're thriving. They're bouncing all over the place. So keep that in mind. That's one of the things that when I got into bioactives that I started to realize is that you can't let those things dry out very much because you lose your your cleaner bugs. So I would say that if you have an enclosure, if you want to use them as part of the enclosure, I would keep part of it dry and I would, I mean, keep part of it moist. Duh. And I would add some spots in there. Like I like to put down little broken pieces of cork bark and stuff because what happens is underneath the broken pieces of cork bark usually stays pretty moist. So they have kind of a little haven if things should dry out. And I like using the leaf litter because again, it kind of traps down in some of that moisture. Some of the areas that have leaf litter, especially if you mix it in a little bit with a substrate, tend to hold on to moisture a little bit better and give them a little haven should things dry out. So that would be my answer to that with anybody wanting to use springtails they're not people go out again and they work great but you have to have some moisture in there and I think a lot of folks don't realize that they drop them in and you know a couple months down the road they're like where did all my springtails go well it's a dry enclosure they're not going to be able to thrive in that like they would with some moisture it's kind of it's it's a little more than just dropping them in and going yep everything's going to be perfect you have to have good condition for the feeder insects as well and that's one of the reasons why I try to warn people off the bioactive thing until they get some experience because when you start when you take that step forward and start introducing plants in and then the feeder bugs again we're worrying about more than just the husbandry of the spider we are now worrying about the husbandry of the plant and of the feeder insects so rock out great question again if if it's moist my my trick would be go find some of the and, and honestly i've been using this stuff for just about everything now the leaf litter I, I encourage people to check this stuff out. It's really, I love the way it looks. It just, it adds something to the enclosure. It looks much more naturalistic. Even in the ones I don't have plants in, I've been dropping in some of the leaf litter now. And I really just, I like watching the spiders hunt when like a cricket or a roach gets underneath the leaf litter and they feel it and they're digging up trying to get it. It's just fun to watch. It's just really cool stuff. So, and I've had other people chime in too now that are starting to use it and really like it. So check it out. It can be tough to find sometimes. I've been getting mine off of, I think Amazon, I found a place in Amazon that gets it. And you want to be careful to get stuff. Obviously, you want to buy it from somebody that's getting leaf litter that hasn't been exposed to pesticides or herbicide, whatever type of sides you want to have, it's going to end up with you killing your spiders if it's got that stuff on it. So you want to be careful where you get it from. But And it can be pricey from what drives me nuts is I hopped on Amazon a few months ago. And basically, you could tell it was people that were just collecting leaves from their backyard and selling it for huge amounts of money. And that's you don't want that. You want a place that obviously deals with reptiles and amphibians, like someplace that supplies people who are doing bioactive enclosures because then you're going to get a clean product as opposed to something that somebody just went out in their backyard and went, hey, Johnny, we can sell this stuff. So I encourage people to check it out. Let me know how it goes. If you do check it out, I've got bags of it all over the place. Now I tend to put it in everything, even in my temporary enclosures now with juveniles and stuff. I found some of the spiders will dig a little bit underneath it, use it in their burrows. Just really cool effect. I wish I had found it sooner because it really... It just adds so much to the enclosure. So that would be my answer to that, my little plug for using leaf litter in just about any enclosure. So I hope that helps, Rockhound. That would be my trick. If you want to use it, if it's something you want to use them, I would just keep part of the substrate moist for a while. Keep half of, Pick half of it, keep it moist, add some leaf litter in there and use them in there and see what you think and then let me know how it works out. All right, so for this episode, what we are going to be talking about is Theraphosa species. I've been waiting to do this one because last week I ended up finally pulling the trigger and getting one of the spiders that has been top on my wish list for many, many, many years now. I thought I had one a few years ago and it ended up it was misidentified and somebody was nice enough to help me out. Theraphosa apophysis, or uh, what is the other way? There's another way. Apophysis, apophysis, apophysis is the other way I've heard it pronounced. I don't know which one it is. I'm not going to argue over these. I'm actually putting together. I got something down in the pipe that I'm hoping is going to work a way for people to learn scientific names, but I want to be able to have an audio version of it. So when people can, you know, not only see the names, but how they're pronounced. And I'm afraid to do it because every time I pronounce a scientific name, I get three different up to with Bami. I think we're at 16 different pronunciations for the word. And I think the problem is with the scientific names, they're meant to be written. They're not meant to so much be spoken and it, it just gets to be a mess so anyway i've had a lot of people asking me lately about theraphosa species and i think for a lot of us those end up being the holy grails because we get into the hobby we 
buy tarantulas because we're fascinated by the fact that there are giant spiders. And I've gone through this before. The fact that many of us go through a stage where bigger is better. I want the biggest thing out there. I want something I can whip out at a party and show a bunch of people. All right, that sounds absolutely terrible, but you guys know what I'm saying. Like you have people over your house and you're like, hey, you want to see a really big tarantula? And you break out the whatever bird eater you have. And I'll tell you, I've done it before and people are incredibly impressed by them. And I'm impressed by them. That's one, this was one of the, Theraphosa sturmi was one of the last spiders that truly, I, I truly had a sense of awe when I looked at it. Like I had gotten to the point where I'd gotten over my fear of tarantulas and I missed it to a point only because of that thrill I got from them. I don't know how to explain it. It's almost like, I guess it's almost like an adrenaline rush when, because it was a point where I was still scared of them. I was keeping them. I was getting some big ones. I was doing the rehousings. I was having to stay calm. And I did. I never had an issue with it. But there was always that sense of, ooh, this thing is, woo, look at that. And then that kind of went away. It, it, after a while, I just got used to it. Like the other day, Billy was laughing the other night because we were packing up two males to ship off to Tanya at Fear Not Tarantulas for breeding. And I did them both. Like I literally just put them in the thing. I, I did it. And I, it, she's like, that was just so nonchalant. And we were kind of laughing about even just a few years ago, that would have been much a much larger ordeal for me. But now it's just like they're spiders. They're not. They're, they don't scare me at all. The Theraphosa were the last ones when I got the first my male Sturmy. It ended up being I picked up a four inch. I think it was the first one I got was a four inch sub adult because I was I'd read so much about them being so difficult to take care of that I decided I wanted one that was already well started so that I didn't screw up and kill a sling or something. That was kind of my my guinea pig. It, it worked out great. It, it grew to maturity, no problems there. But I remember getting this thing out and opening it up and just staring at it in absolute awe. Like, I can't believe a spider can get this large. And luckily, as I picked up, I ended up picking up two more slings after this guy molted a couple times. Like, all right, I'm ready for this. I got this. It's not as bad. And I picked up two slings, I believe the second instar. Grew them up to adults. The male grew up to maturity. Unfortunately, I did lose the female. I'm not sure what happened there. That one's still, I'm still crushed about that one. But I got to watch them grow up from tiny, fast, super fast slings to beefy juveniles to, in my case, very calm adults. I was very lucky that both of mine were very laid back, calm. I didn't have any issues with them. And so after a while, I decided it was time to move into Theraphosa Blondie. That was obviously the holy grail for many people. And the funny thing is, people ask me all the time, what's the big difference? There, there are small differences between the two. And I'm not going to get into them here so much. I mean, it's more about care in this one, but we can do that in another episode. But there are differences in the thickness of the legs. There's differences, obviously, the hairs on the knees. There's a few different cosmetic differences, but they're trivial. The two spiders are very similar. So I get a lot of people going, should I go out and spend 75 bucks on a Sturmy or should I get the more expensive Blondie? It's up to you. It's Look at pictures and decide which one you like more. Most people confuse them all the time. Pet stores are constantly tell, selling T-Sturmy as T-Blondie so they can charge extra money for it. They're almost identical. And I know there'll be people out there like, no, 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 but this and that. For the mo for the layman, for people that aren't keeping a lot of spiders and can't compare them, you're going to get the same basic type of spider. You're going to get a big, beefy, massive spider when you're done. So don't get so much hung up in that. If you can only find a Sturmy, pick up a Sturmy. You're not going to be disappointed. I'm not. I still love the Sturmy. If you had to ask me which is my favorite right now between my Sturmies and my Blondies, I couldn't pick one. They, I love them both. Uh, Sturmy might be my favorite only because it was the first Theraphosa species I ever raised. But I want to get that. There's a couple points I'm going to, you know, I want to cover in this one, a couple myths I want to discuss and a couple tips. And that's one of them right off the bat. Don't get hung up on it. If you want a Theraphosa species and you find a Sturmy for a good price, you're not buying the bargain brand. You're not buying the generic version. I've heard people like, yeah, I want the real bird eater. There's still arguments over which one actually gets larger. There's been, I've heard people say that the leg span of the blondie gets bigger but the sturmy is actually thicker and beefier it's it really it's you're splitting hairs they're both you know so close that it's not going to be you're not going to be disappointed either way so to kick it off i did finally get the apophysis had them up pretty much the same way so let's start off talking about slings and again i'll be talking about the apophysis do not take my i just picked up slings i have this thing about it's important to me that I raise a sling up before I tell people this is good husbandry information. Anybody can pick up a sling, set it up and go, yep, this is how you set them up. But it's, you know, you have to kind of look at the long term. Do they survive? Do they do well? Does it grow up to maturity? So again, I'm, I have two now. I have the 
T Blondie that are right now, I think about seven and a half inches or so. So they're getting up there. A few more molds to be adult size. I've raised Therphosa sturmi up to adults. So as far as those two species are concerned, I've got some good experience with them. It, with the Apophysis, obviously I just got this as a sling. I will tell you how I've got it set up. I will tell you how I plan to keep it. But again, if you're planning on getting one of these, this is where you go out and you look at other people. You look at, you know, Look for other information. Go on to boards and see what people say about how to keep them. Don't just go by me. I mean, it's always very important to me that people understand or I'm very transparent with the fact that this is something I just got. I'm still making sure that I'm keeping it. The I, I believe I'm right with how I, uh, I'm keeping it. I don't think I'm wrong. But I always just like to give them some time to grow so that we can go, oh, look it. I'm not just saying I'm keeping it right. It went from a little sling to an adult. Obviously, I'm doing something okay. So that's my little disclaimer for this. So to kick it off, one thing right off the bat with these guys that I think gets overlooked is people know that they need moisture but they end up putting them in enclosures that don't offer a lot of substrate space. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think when you have a moisture-dependent species, even if it's a terrestrial species, the key to keeping them and the key to making sure you don't have to obsess over the levels of moisture in the enclosure is to give them deeper substrate. I had somebody send me photos the other day of a Therophosa sturmi in a little, it was a decent sized sturmy sling and they start off big they're like you know if you've seen theraphosa slings they all they look like juveniles of other species so when they set the enclosure up they only had maybe i don't know a half an inch of substrate in there that's going to evaporate much more quickly it's going to dry out much more quickly it doesn't give the animal much room to burrow you're going to have to stay on top of it a lot more it's going to cause more stress so right off the bat regardless of what you set your slings up in make sure you give them deep moist substrate they will burrow. I found that the Sturmies did quite a bit of burrowing. My Blondies have all burrowed. My Sturmies, I think the original slings I set up in the two-quart mainstay containers were their first enclosures. I had 16-ounce deli cups set up for them, and as soon as I opened them up, I was like, these are way too small. So I switched over to the mainstay containers. It lasted them about three molts before they outgrew them. But they had plenty of room to dig, and I didn't have to obsess nearly as much about making sure things are moist. Because as soon as you get one of the big ones, the, the moisture-dependent species that, like, Theraphosa comes to mind, uh, Oviolospes comes to mind, the species that we know absolutely need moist substrate people tend to freak out. They tend to overdo it. And I think if you give yourself more substrate depth, if you recognize the fact that you don't have to keep the top layers moist, that's not the key. The key is to keep the bottom layers moist so the spider can burrow and dig down to the moisture level it needs. As soon as you figure that out, it makes the whole moisture dependent thing much more simple, much simpler. And I think a lot of people, they make the mistake of just setting them, they go, oh, what's well, a terrestrial sling? I'll give it a, you know, a little bit of substrate. No, the trick is these are the ones you want to give extra substrate to. They won't use it all. They won't dig all. Mine didn't dig all the way down to the bottom. Maybe somebody will chime in. Theirs did. Mine didn't dig all the way down to the bottom. So it wasn't one of those deals where they dug, you know, tunnels six inches down and were lost. They dug down a bit. It made it much easier to keep them away. So that would be tip number one with keeping these guys right through adulthood. Give them extra substrate. Give them enough substrate so that you can add water and walk away and know that at least for several weeks, that isn't, that substrate isn't going to completely dry up on you overnight. So with that in mind, when setting up an enclosure, you want to grab something that's going to give you plenty of size. I've noticed that mine, uh, personally, the 16 ounce deli cup's too small. 32 ounce deli cup, probably a little bit small. And here's something you need to know. These guys grow like weeds, all three of them. Uh, well, obviously I can't. I can't respond to the apophysis yet or can't comment on that because I don't have the personal experience, but a buddy of mine we were talking about, he says they eat great, they grow quickly, he's been keeping me track of his, Charles, I'm talking to you, obviously, and he's one of the ones that kind of convinced me I finally had to get one of these guys because he kept sending me pictures of his and making me feel bad that I didn't have one. So what you want to do is make sure that you start with an enclosure that's going to give you some time in between. You know, They're going to have a couple molts. You want to make sure you have a couple molts in it because they do put on size so quickly that I think a lot of people find themselves rehousing much more often than they would for other species. So for example, I use those mainstays. Those are two quarts. They're pretty good size. They're probably about five inches square around, four and a half, five inches square around, which for many other species of slings would be a really large enclosure. Again, two or three molts, I had to get them out of there. They were they were putting on massive, massive size. So you don't want to overdo it, and I'm not a proponent of dropping slings into giant enclosures. I've made that very, very clear. 
just be prepared that you may be doing a little more rehousing than you normally do with other species. And I haven't had much difficulty rehousing them. They can be, oh, one thing I want to mention that never gets mentioned. I've mentioned it in my articles though in a couple videos. They are fast. Do not underestimate the speed of these slings. I don't know why people don't mention this. I think we get caught up in the fact that they are so large, but I have seen Sturmy slings and Blondie slings, not the Apophysis so far, bolt out of their burrows, grab a cricket maybe four or five inches away, and be back in their burrows in a blink of an eye. They are skittish at that size. And if disturbed, they will bolt. Now, the good thing is they will usually bolt to their burrows, but I did have a situation where I caught one of my Sturmies out, surprised it, went over the top of the burrow, almost out of the enclosure. And again, they're quick. The, if you see them, they are huge leggy slings, and they use those legs to generate quite a bit of speed. So be aware of that. It's never mentioned, but I've had people that have listened to my videos and gone back and gone, man, I thought it was just me. They're really quick. They just, it doesn't get doesn't get the attention it deserves. That's something people need to be aware of. Not trying to scare people off, but just I want people prepared for what they're getting. Because you picture your tiny, you know, your normal tiny little Afonapelma, Brachypelma sling. They're, they're God, almost microscopic. And they don't move particularly fast even when they bolt. These guys have it all over them. So know that you're going to want an enclosure that offers a little bit of room so they don't bolt and go right out, out and, you know, Next thing you know, it, you're trying to cup it on your dinner table, table or on your floor. Give it some room for that. Give it some room for substrate. I would say for a sling, you're going to want something again around two quarts or so for uh, to start off to give yourself some room so that you don't have to basically rehouse it immediately. Because you'll see. And I, when I got my first T. Sturmy slings, I was used to keeping Fromictopus, which I thought used, they used to amaze me with their growth rates. I, I, I was blown away. That was the first species of spider that I got that was a kind of a fast growing one. And I remember like the size they were putting on, calling Billion, like, you got to see this. Then I got Theraphosa and I realized what fast growth really is and how much size they can really put on. They, I, I think my first, if I remember correctly, I should have taken notes for this, but Billy kind of jetted out of here early this morning and I didn't have everything done. If I remember correctly, I got my first within a year. There were like five and a half, six inches, my Sturmies. And this is with temperatures that in some cases were down to like the high 60s during the wintertime. This is before I started heating that room. So they, I was getting some great gro growth rate on out of them. And after that, they tend to slow down a bit. But you could conceivably have a five to six inch spider in a year. Depending on your temperatures, depending on your feeding schedules, they put on massive amounts of size. So with that in mind, with slings, I would encourage people to avoid, uh, you're not going to need a dram bottle. I can tell you that. I don't think a dram bottle would be appropriate because they're going to out, if you can fit one in one or you can find a big old fat dram bottle and fit one in, it's going to outgrow at the next molt. Anyway, I find 16 ounce or a little small. I find 32 ounce offered a nice depth of substrate and probably could work, but again, they're going to outgrow it quickly. So find something you know, decent size. It offers, you know, a good depth for nice moist substrate. You're going to give them a cork bark hide, sphagnum moss, definitely a water dish on this one. They're large enough. You can drop a water dish right off the bat. Again, you can put water dishes in with anything, but these guys, you can put a decent size water dish in. Expect them to burrow. They will burrow when they molt. At least mine all did. Then when they went into pre-molt, they burrowed and kind of covered up their burrow. So it's a good indication that they're getting ready to molt. And feeding wise, they are eating machines. Again, I saw that sling rush across an enclosure, grab the cricket, rush back. They are fun to watch hunt. They hit like trucks. The As far as I've never had to feed any pre-killed prey or had them scavenge feed, they've all been great eaters. I will say I went to feed my two ap apophysis the other day and I dropped in little red runner roaches and I think I startled one and actually threat postured it and then ran away but then later on I found it was eating it so it was fine the other one I dropped the thing in and it grabbed it out of the air and was eating it so awesome eaters I, I wouldn't bother with pre-kill I mean if you have a situation where you have to pre-kill something I'm sure they'll eat it but I haven't had to do it they'll eat small crickets right off the bat small red runners small dubia I mean that's I've gone ahead and fed mine mealworms and I fed my sling once a pretty good sized mealworm and ate it up no problem. So great eaters. As far as a schedule, as I've always said, I feed my slings more often than I do my adults. I usually feed them about twice a week, but I'm trying to get them out of that fragile sling stage. But feel free to choose a feeding schedule that works for you. There are people that feed them weekly. They feed them bi-weekly. I've talked to people that feed all theirs once a month and they do perfectly fine. So don't think you have to feed them that much. It's just something I do. It's my happy place. So I like feeding them. So I tend to feed them more often than not. And I always like to make sure I'm checking on my slings 
more than just once a week or more than just the cursory in the tarantula room with the flashlight checking on them. When you take them out, feed them, you kind of have to check the hydration levels. You make sure everything's okay, drop in some food, you got it. Also, always keep in mind that if you feed spiders larger meals, they will often eat less. So what will end up happening is I'll get emails from people that will say, hey, I dropped in a large cricket with my Theraphosa Sturmy sling. It ate the whole cricket, but now I'm worried she hasn't eaten in a week. Well, yeah, she filled up. That's it. <laughs> they, If you give them super large meals, especially slings, it's possible for slings to fill up in one or two feedings, no problem, especially with those larger meals. So do know that if you're feeding bigger meals, if you're feeding bigger prey because you want to watch the big takedowns or whatever, then chances are you're going to get a spider that's going to stop eating sooner and go into a longer pre-mold. So just a heads up there. Now, one myth right off the bat, the one I first got into these is everything I read or a lot of what I read until I spoke to some people that knew what they were talking about said that they had to be kept at high temperatures. If you don't keep them at least 80 degrees, if you don't keep them at least 82 degrees, they don't grow right. They have molt problems. It's BS. It's not true. It's I've spoken to many people, well, many people before I even got mine and then many people afterwards. And then I have my own uh, evidence of just what's happened to my own collection, they do not need elevated temperatures. This is not a species you need to heat. You do not need it at 80 degrees. Again, the first Sturmies that I had, I had the male that I picked up at four and a half inches. That one grew fine. And that was back when literally the tarantula room would sometimes hit 67 degrees. It was on a lower shelf. I measured it. I have a picture somewhere of the enclosure on a shelf with the thermometer that was digital thermometer. I just kind of use it to get the overall temperature of the room. Was it 67 degrees? I got the slings uh, shortly after that, a few months after that, four or five months after that, maybe. Again, wasn't heating the room. It was getting colder in the winter. I believe I got them in the winter time too. It was a little bit chillier. They did fine. They grow great. I, so this is not a species, I don't know, again, obviously, and we say this ad nauseum, faster or higher temperatures will lead to faster metabolisms and usually a faster growth rate. So if you live in an area where it's 80 degrees in your house quite a bit, or it's a lot warmer, you'll probably get faster growth rate, but that doesn't, that's not necessarily a good thing. They don't need it. That's what probably the best way to put it. They don't need the extra temperatures. They will do just fine. Cause I read plenty of things out there that said, if you don't keep them at a certain temperature, I've had people come on videos and go, you're going to kill your spiders. Those have to be kept at 85 degrees. Again, that you can file that right up there with the care sheet ideal temperatures and humidity requirements. It's nonsense. They will do fine at room temperature. I've proven that with mine. My blondies right now are being kept in, like, I think right now in the tarantula room on the shelf they're on is about 74 degrees or so. When it gets a little bit warmer around here, it'll go up to 79 or 80. In the wintertime, sometimes it goes down to 72 or so, 70. They're doing just fine. They're growing great. So just a heads up there about the temperatures. That's one of the myths I hear. The other myth I've heard quite a few times. The first time I heard it, I thought it was just somebody pulling something out of their backside because they wanted to sound like they knew they were talking about. Every once in a while, you hear these weird things and you don't know how to deal with them. It's like, where did you get this from? But there are people that will say that if you don't feed them constantly, they will die. They need, I've, I've heard this from several people. Yeah, you know about those Theraphosa species though. You have to feed them at least every couple of days. You got to feed them big meals because if you skip a week or you don't feed them a lot, they can die. That's not true. They're spiders. They're tarantulas. They're just like anything else out there. They don't die. They don't starve if you don't feed them every day or every other day or even every week. I've, I, I had mine at a point, my adults, where I would drop in the hisser roaches or a couple big fat dubia roaches and they were good for a month. I mean, they would fill up on those. You didn't want to overdo it. Again, I'm not one of these people that believes so much that you can overfeed spiders for the most part, tarantulas for the most part. But again, you don't, there's no point in just fatten, feeding them every single day is just kind of ridiculous. So that's another myth that if you hear about it, just kindly disregard it. They are big eaters. They do need big meals. I mean, you can't, I think one thing right off the bat is if you're dropping in two crickets once a month, that's really kind of not a lot for them, especially for an adult. They are huge. So I think procuring larger food items for them is going to be important later on having the dubia roaches. I have fed them crickets, but I've seen mine take down, you know, the big, large, like the really fat crickets, seven of them, no problem. Web them up, big old cricket burrito. But the myth that they need to be fed constantly or else they starve and die and, and don't do well. Again, that's a myth. So, slings very i found very easy to raise you want to make sure that the substrate stays moist at all times with all three of these species sturmy i have heard stories and i did talk to a guy years ago that was keeping his sturmies on dry substrate with just a water dish he had a lot of luck with them i don't discount that he i don't think he was lying i think he was 
probably doing quite well with them. I personally wouldn't do that myself. I mean, these are species that we've recognized for years as being moisture dependent. Plus, with the really, really big spiders, you don't want them to have problems during molts because what can happen is you keep them dry. They seem to be doing well. They're eating. And then all of a sudden, molt time comes around and they have a problem with the molts. And that's a big thing. With the bigger the spider, it seems like the more difficulty they can sometimes have with molting. There's plenty of videos out there of people with the Theraphosa blondi or Theraphosa sturmi that, you know, big, massive ones that have problems with molts. You don't want that. So make sure you keep them in something that allows you to keep that substrate moist. Again, doesn't have to be the top level, the lower level, and make sure they have some room to grow because eventually you're going to have a quote-unquote juvenile on your hands, whatever size that may be. These guys, again, juvenile theraphosa species are sometimes bigger than full-grown adults of other species. So I, it depends on the size. Usually I'm, I'm picturing something around three, three and a half inches or so. That's where I'm going to move them again. And again, you're going to end up put, putting them in a large enclosure. I put my juveniles in the sterilite bins. And here's another thing. This isn't so much a myth, but this is a tip. When working with Theraphosa species or any moisture dependent species, don't worry as much, especially with juveniles. When they get to be adults, you can play around with it. But with juveniles, don't worry as much about having a pretty enclosure as having an enclosure that's appropriate for the spider. And what that means is you want an enclosure that's going to offer enough depth for substrate, for moist substrate. You want an enclosure that's going to allow you to properly ventilate it. And I should have mentioned that also with the slings. You want to make sure with these moist enclosures, there's some good ventilation in there. And you want to make sure that it gives them room to grow. So I think what happens is people get these spiders and they're like, man, I want this. I had somebody that wanted to put one in the Exoterra breeding boxes. And I was like, I don't think they're appropriate. They're too shallow. I think those bins are only about four inches deep or so because they have the kind of domed cover. The covers kind of go up at like an inch and a half. So although they're listed as being like five and a half inches deep, they're really only like four inches deep, the bottom part. And it doesn't offer enough room for moist substrate. They dry out very, very quickly. It doesn't give the keeper a lot of room to work when they pull that top off because it's very shallow. The spider can easily go up and out of it. So those are not appropriate. So when setting up a juvenile, don't worry about finding something pretty at this point. You have plenty of time to do that once your spider hits, you know, the six, seven inch mark and you're going to put it into its adult enclosure. For the time being, worry about putting in something that will not evaporate. The water won't evaporate quickly. That'll allow you to put a lot of substrate in it. I've been using, I again, I use those Sterilite containers. I think they're about 16 inches by maybe 10 inches by maybe five and a half inches deep or so. All right, I actually just ran and grabbed the tape measure and measured it. They're about 11 by six by 15 inches. So pretty good size. And I drop my juveniles in there when they hit about the three inch mark or so. So it gives them plenty of room. Then I go ahead and I include a cork bark hide. And what I will do is put the cork bark hide. I will dig like a little starter burrow under it and I will stack some substrate over top of it. So one side of it's got like four inches of substrate and they usually use that hide. All mine have used the hide quite a bit. They will basically sit in there, ambush prey when you drop prey in. And then when it comes pre molt time, a lot of times they will web up both entrances or the entrance. I've had ones make entrances out of both sides of it. So like right now, my one of my blondies has an entrance on both sides. The other one has an entrance on one side. And when it comes time to pre-molt, they'll go ahead and web that one up. But you want to make sure that you have a few inches, at least three inches of substrate in there. I know they're terrestrial, but again, we want to make sure that it's easy to keep things moist. And I found that if you set up the cork bark on one side, put about four inches of substrate. So it's about four inches total in the enclosure with substrate and the cork bark. Then I put some sphagnum moss, mix some sphagnum moss in around there, and it makes a nice area that you can add moisture to that'll sink down to the bottom. Its den always remains moist. The part by the water dish, the front of the cage where I put the water dish can dry out a little bit. It's about making sure that the substrate where the spider has created its den stays moist at all times. And I found that those enclosures work particularly well, particularly well. Uh, I know people have it against the Sterilite because it's a little milky, but these enclosures are pretty much clear over a little milky. They look good on a shelf. They stack. So if you get more than one, they're easy to stack up. And more importantly, they're easier to make a, a, a proper cage out of. You can take these things, use a soldering iron. You can put in as much you want. Good, again, good ventilation on all four sides so it doesn't get stagnant in there. And they provide enough depth and enough space for the spider to burrow and have have some room to grow because you're going to keep them in there for a little while, at least three or four bolts, hopefully. So that's what I had. That's what I put my Sturmy in when I had them. They were in there until they were about the five and a half inch, six inch mark where it's usually because I use these usually for the larger terrestrial species. My two Blondie are currently in those as well, although they are starting. One of them is I caught her out the other day and she looks like she's probably six to seven inches. It's hard to tell. I hate being one of those people that exaggerates. That seems to be a big thing in the hobby where people sit there and go, yeah, I got... 
I've got a seven inch uh, Gramostola Porteri here. And then you get a picture of it and it's like closer to six, but whatever. I try not to do that, but it's anywhere between six and seven. So that one's going to be getting a new home soon. And I have something lined up for it, at least temporarily. But trick is whatever you choose for a home, make sure it's put the needs of the spider first. I've alluded to this in other podcasts and on videos. Don't worry about getting something pretty right off the bat. Make sure your spider has a home that's going to provide it the what it needs to survive, to thrive. So basically something that adds space to allow it to grow and something that adds enough depth of substrate so that you don't have a hard time keeping the substrate moist so you don't have to over-obsess on it. Now, to cover another myth, now that we're talking about moisture, because I've been trying to sprinkle some of these myths here, the myth that they are swamp dwellers. I think that came from the Tarantula Keeper's Guide. It's a rather unfortunate way of referring to them, because they, if you keep them swampy, you're likely to end up with a dead spider. If you look at old videos and stuff with people keeping these things are in aquariums where the ventilation is all blocked off, and eventually the spider has problems and dies, a lot of that can probably be attributed to the fact that it's too moist. I mean, if it's constantly moist and nasty and dank, you're going to have a lot of bacteria form. You don't want that. We've had this conversation before about, I think, a lot of deaths deaths with tarantulas, especially the moisture-dependent ones, are due to the fact that we put them in enclosures with dirt. We dump water in repeatedly. There gets to be a bacteria buildup, and it can kill the tarantula eventually if it's kept in there that long. So you don't want a situation where it's dank and nasty. That's not good for anything. You want to make sure you have good ventilation. I have people that will freak out because they'll be like, what is too much ventilation? Well, if you have side ventilation, you, you want it on all four sides. I don't like the ventilation on the top because what that does is a it doesn't allow air to rush through you want air flow you want air going through the enclosure when possible that moves out the dank air so if you get air from the sides like think your house yesterday it was kind of dank and stuffy in here we opened up the windows on all four sides of the house we got nice cross ventilation it swept everything out fresh air it's perfect same principle if you open the top or you have an open top the problem with it is yes you'll get some some air evaporate, you know, coming in, but it's not rushing through the enclosure, so to speak. It's not really moving through or moving air through the enclosure or, you know, from one side of the enclosure out to the other. Plus, it allows water to evaporate much more quickly. I think I've mentioned before that we did experiments once where we put spiders in two different types of enclosures. One was ventilated on the top. One had ventilation, cross ventilation on the sides. And the one that was ventilated on the top was evaporating. The soil was drying out much more quickly than the one that we had ventilated the sides on. So again, not wrong to have top ventilation. People come on and go, well, this is all I can have. A lot of people use it. I have enclosures that have top ventilation. It's just not normally ideal. And I prefer cross ventilation, especially with species that we know we're going to be keeping the inside of that enclosure moist because it does help keep the airflow going. So when we talk about these, this speed, the Theraphosa species, whether it be Blondie, Sturmy, or Apophysis, when they are moisture dependent, you do not want to keep things swampy. You should not have soil that you can pick up and squeeze water out of it. You can allow the top to dry out a bit. Again, just like any other tarantula species we keep, it's not about keeping the top layers moist. It's about making sure the bottom layers stay moist. I think this is one of the biggest issues that people have. I'll get pictures. People will go, hey, can you check out my setup? And it looks like somebody took a fire hose to it. And I think part of it is they want to make sure that I know that they're keeping it moist. But it shouldn't be dripping. There shouldn't be condensation. Bottom layers stay moist, top layers can dry out a little bit, and my next tip, use larger water dishes than you would with other spiders. Use double water dishes. That's another trick. I have used, when I had my large Theraphosa Sturmy adults, I would put in two large open water dishes. Not only does that provide a place for them to drink from, but the water dishes obviously will evaporate into the inside of that enclosure, and it keeps the substrate from drying out as quickly. So that helps in that respect. Again, it's not so much about humidity. It's about controlling the exit of moisture from the substrate. And when you put in two large open mouth water dishes, that keeps the inside hydrated enough that it doesn't evaporate nearly as fast as it would with a smaller water dish. So just a little trick there that's worked well for me. I've used that for a lot of different moisture dependent species. Nothing says you only have to put in one water dish. You can definitely add another one or even a large one for a specimen. Like I put the five inch water dishes in with four inch spiders. They do perfectly fine. I've caught them drinking out of them. And again, it just helps keep the moisture up. And always, as always, sphagnum is your best friend. Putting sphagnum moss, mixing it in with the substrate, mixing it around the corner, putting it around the den or the burrow as a place to kind of hold on to moisture is also very, very helpful. Now, as far as feeding, these guys will take down large dubia. They'll take down several large crickets, several red runner roaches. Again, they are massive eater. They eat 
they hunt. It's amazing to watch them hunt because they're big spiders. You can hear them moving when they're running across the substrate. They eat a lot. So make sure that, you know, again, if you're dropping in one cricket, probably not going to be enough. You want to drop in a few crickets. If you're getting these guys, I would invest. Well, it depends. I guess if you only got one, you get away with just crickets or superworms work, a couple superworms. But these are ones I do like dropping in, especially after a molt, a dubia or a hisser, because it helps fatten them up a little bit because they can get a little skinny after a molt and it can take a while to fatten them back up. But great eaters all the, all the way through to adulthood, just awesome eaters. Both the Blondie and Sturmy so far have been great eaters. I haven't had the Epiphysis very long, so can't really comment on that. But so far, so good. They both ate two, I think two little small Red Runner roaches. So know that if you do have these guys, you are going to be, you know, your feeding bill is going to go up a little bit as far as if you're buying crickets at your local pet store because they do like to eat. Now, adults, this is where it gets tricky because this is where a lot of people, you have these giant spiders, you want to make sure that you can display them properly. I'm personally, right now, I've got 10-gallon tanks that I'm going to be moving my two T. Blondie into, which I don't think will be their permanent enclosures, but I do want to show them off now, and I want something where I can see them better. So I'm thinking for adults, I've heard people that have them in 20 gallons. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. I've heard people that have them in 15 gallons. I think that's a good size. I mean, I'm looking at my 15 gallon that I have my communal in my M. Balfouri communal. And that would probably be a good size. That would have been a good size for my big female when I had her. It was about nine inches or so. If you if you're pushing 10 to 12 inches, you're probably going to want to go more than at least 15 gallons, although that might be a little tight, probably closer to 20 gallons. So do know that this is a species that if you want to display it and want people to see it, you're going to have to have some room for it. You're going to need a big enclosure. So if people that are keeping their spiders in closets or have, you know, have been basically given a shelf in the house to keep their their pets on by their wives or significant others, their husbands, boyfriends, whatever it may be, you're going to want a bigger space for these guys. And I think that's something that needs to be taken into consideration when getting any type of Theraphosis species, that if you have a smaller collection and you have a smaller place to display them, you're going to need a larger enclosure eventually. And they, it's going to be sooner than later because these guys do put on massive amounts of size. So with that in mind, setting up the enclosure, if you want, if, if you want to use a tub, Sterilite makes some ones out there. Again, they're going to be milky, but they can be well ventilated. They can provide a lot of room for substrate. Because again, with the adults, don't don't get be a substrate Scrooge with adults. I think I see people that get the adults and they throw them on a few inches of substrate because like, yeah, oh, the terrestrials are not really using their burrows anymore. No, I found that mine will still continue to use their burrows to a point. My big male, my big female both tried to hide with their burrows, you want to be able to give them at least five or six inches, in my opinion, five or six inches of substrate to help keep it moist at all times. Again, it's not so much even if they burrow, it's about giving them enough depth that it doesn't evaporate too quickly. You still, they're still moisture dependent spiders. You still want to make sure that they have that substrate to hold on to that moisture that they need. So I would get, the tubs work great. Obviously, they're not going to make for great display models, but Again, it should come down to what's appropriate for the spider. So if you're on a budget and you don't have the money for a big aquarium or you don't have money for a big acrylic enclosure, completely understandable, these work fine. And the spider's not going to care. Let's call it as it is. The spider, if you set it up appropriately, five or six inches of damp substrate, again, nice big cork bark hide with maybe a starter burrow underneath, put in some of that sphagnum, maybe throw down some of that leaf litter we were talking about earlier, a big open mouth water dish in there for it. The spider's going to be perfectly happy. It's not going to care that it's not completely transparent. So always put the spider first. Don't worry about people that come on. I love the, the enclosure snobs that come on and are like, man, that's a waste for that beautiful spider putting it in that terrible enclosure. The spider doesn't care. You care because you want to be able to see it better. Spider doesn't care. So always put the spider first as far as enclosures are concerned. The acrylics are nice because, again, they offer that completely clear view. If you get one like Lorex Plastics and you want more holes drilled, less holes drilled, they can do that custom work for you. There's probably other things out there. I'm not uh, – people that are overseas – feel free to chime in because I know you guys get some different enclosures that we get over here in the States and you've got some nice alternatives, but I will say there's not a lot offered on the market right now that as far as professional or, you know, high-end enclosures that are appropriate for a full-grown adult Blondie, Sturmy, or Apophysis. A lot of the stuff like the, I will tell you right off the bat, the 12 by 12 by 12 Exoterra 
uh, exoterra enclosures, the glass ones. A lot of people put them in those. I wouldn't do it because A, the 12 by 12 by 12 is great for a juvenile. It's going to outgrow that thing super fast. It's too small for an adult, in my opinion. So it's not a great enclosure for it because you're going to set it up and within a year, you're going to have to rehouse it anyway. I guess if you want it displayed and you want to show it off and you don't mind that you're going to have to rehouse sooner than later, I guess it's okay. I just don't recommend those for you know sub-adults or adults. Aquariums can work, but you have to fill them with enough substrate that they can't climb and fall and possibly hurt themselves. Also, the wire mesh tops or the the tops that allow all the ventilation are not really appropriate. I've seen people that have taken the aquariums and they've drilled the glass and put in cross ventilation, which is awesome. It's a lot of work. If you know how to do it, though, it's definitely well worth it. I've seen people that have created plexiglass tops with hinge tops on them so that, again, it doesn't have that wire. It's not letting all the moisture evaporate out, but it's still providing enough ventilation. You're going to have to get creative when housing an adult Theraphosa species because they're so big. So, what I, again, I'm using the 10 gallons and then probably upgrading to a 15 or 20 eventually when they put on enough size, which is why I've told Billy now we need to get a new house because I need a larger tarantula room because eventually these guys are going to be huge and I'm going to need the room for them. But I think that's, again, t- tip number whatever we're on now. I probably should have numbered them, but th- make sure this is a species. Don't just look at it and go, all right, it's a cute little inch and a half sling right now before you know it, you will have a large spider on your hands. Make sure that you plan ahead and have the room for it. Make sure that you plan ahead and know what you're going to use for an enclosure. Be thinking about this ahead of time. I'm not telling people to drop them in adult enclosures. I want to make that very clear because I get that one a lot. What I'm saying is be aware that they're going to take up a lot of space. You're going to need a lot of room for these guys and that they're a little above and beyond your average large tarantula as far as care and as far as you know what you're going to need for enclosures for them. So always keep Keep that in mind. And once again, they remain they're one of my favorite things to feed because they're just so massive. I've I remember dropping in a dubia roach with my large male a couple years ago, and it the dubia roach apparently triggered the male. The male knew the dubia roach was in there. It sprinted across the enclosure and tackled it. It was it actually startled me. It was amazing to watch. So again, if you're keeping one of these guys, know they're gonna they're big eaters. They're big spiders. If you see the size of their abdomens, if you've seen the size of the abdomen of you know a 10 inch sturmy or a 10 inch blondie, it's huge. It's they can eat a lot. So you want to make sure you have access probably to larger prey items like dubia, hissers. I don't like to feed frozen mice. I would not feed anything live. I think that's honestly, I think that's cruel. I've seen it. It's, it's just nasty, but to eat your own, I wouldn't feed live to it, but I wouldn't feed frozen mice to mine only because the mess that it leaves behind the boluses are just disgusting. And if you drop in a mouse, know that it's going to take it probably more than 24 hours to completely break the thing down. And what's going to be left is a nasty, probably rancid at that point, like gelatinous. It's just the remains are nasty. It's not like a bug where they suck all the moisture out and it leaves just the husk behind which is rather dry it the mice leave remains behind that really they rot very quickly especially if you're feeding in the summer so be aware if you use mice you got to clean that stuff up quick when it drops the thing you got to get in there scoop it out scoop the substrate around it keep the bacteria from forming because they do get nasty and rancid in a hurry so if you you know i know there's people that have access to small lizards and mice you know I've, i know people that have snakes and they're like can i drop a mouse and just be aware i, I be aware that it's going to leave a mess behind and get ready to clean it up because it, it can make a good you know especially after a molt it can make a good meal for one know that there's a lot of people out there that are a myth out there again as we're covering the myths about these guys that the calcium high calcium content of vertebrates like mice or lizards cause molting problems that has never been scientifically proven they will eat these in the wild when they have the opportunity so that's kind of a silly thought i know when i first got into them there's a lot of stuff out there about the high calcium content of these animals causing molt issues and and i did i got where they were going with the supposed science of this but it just it, it doesn't ring true I've, I've found no issues with that and i've talked to many people that have fed theirs vertebrates and had no issues so i don't think that's necessarily an issue i don't believe it that said, I would be careful when feeding them vertebrates because of the mess, and that can be an issue. And the other thing to worry about with these guys, or not worry about, but again, don't worry about venom potency. We just went over this, but anybody that's just joining the podcast for the first time, we went over the fact that with the larger spiders, it's not so much about the potency of venom, be- 
because their fangs are huge and they can cause nasty mechanical damage. It's the same case for any Therophosa species. Those fangs, I believe, get well over a half an inch long. There's been people that have had tendons clipped by them. There's, it's just, it's not going to be a pleasant experience if you get bit by one. So you do not want to get bit by one. You always use caution. However, they can kick hairs, and their hairs are considered to be the nastiest in the hobby by many, many people. I've heard, after uh, talking about hairs and stuff, I had several people come forward to talking specifically about Therophosa hair and how bad they are. So do know the hairs are no joke. They can cause blistering, burning. They can. I've seen pictures of people that have scratched their hands to the point where they bled. They're nasty. As far as first aid for the hairs, they bury their way into your skin, so there's not much you can really do with them. I've heard people have told me that if you take... I believe it was duct tape, and you take a piece of duct tape and put it over the afflicted area, pat it down really good, and rip it up. Not only will you rip all the hairs off the back of your hand or fingers or whatever, but supposedly it helps pull out some of the hairs. That's the only thing I've really heard that you can do with them. Just be careful. That Most of mine weren't really, mine have never really kicked hairs. My Sturmy, unless I was messing with it like during a rehousing, they were never really into the, they were never really big hair kickers, which was great, but know that they will kick hairs around their enclosure to kind of make it their own. So when you're doing husbandry, when you open up that enclosure, I used to be, do something really stupid where I'd pull these guys out onto my dining room table. I would open the enclosure and we have a fan above our table. And what the fan would do is whip up the hairs that were in there. Next thing you know what? I put the enclosure back. I was itching. So always be careful when dealing with them where I would wear gloves with these guys right off the bat and long sleeves, just in case, cause you don't want these hairs on you. And always remember that if you're digging around doing maintenance or cleaning substrate, make sure it's in a ventilated area. If you go out and dump it in your backyard, like I have a pile of compost with all the substrate that I throw out, make sure that you're not downwind, that the stuff doesn't blow on you because it's going to get in your legs, it's going to get on your body, and make sure that when you're dealing with them, you're protecting yourself so you're not getting those hairs on you because, again... They're not pleasant. We talked about this the last episode. Everybody kind of poo-poos the hairs, but I've talked to many people that no longer can even be in a room with Therophosa species because the hairs bother them so badly. Because again, you don't get immune to them the more you're exposed. You actually get more sensitive to them. So you always need to keep that in mind. So don't, don't trifle with the hairs. They're not anything to play around with. Make sure if you're dealing with them, you protect yourself. Make sure if you're showing them off to friends, you keep them at a distance. You don't want your friends to get haired. I've heard situations where people have had people come over and the spider hairs them and the friend's itching and not, not doesn't make for a good situation. Not a good way to introduce somebody to our hobby. So that's about it as far as care for these guys. I mean, again, the trick is the substrate death. The bit, if anything, if anybody gets anything out of this, if you listen to the whole thing and you're just kind of like, my God, I zoned completely out, make sure no matter what stage you have them at, that you have a good depth of substrate so you can keep these things moist. And again, another trick, use those big water dishes to your advantage to keep them from evaporating. You don't want to overdo it. And I think if you have a good substrate depth, it helps you go in there, you look at the substrate, you go, oh, well, the bottom four inches of it are still moist. I'm good. It helps give you peace of mind. You don't do things like overdo it, like adding more water when you don't need it, because that tends to be a big issue with these guys where people freak out. They think they're going to, you know, oh my God, the top's drying out. It's completely dry. My spider's going to die and you pour more water in. And believe me, I've been there. I've done it. So I'm speaking from experience on this one. But do know they are amazing spiders. I know some people, a very close friend of mine is not into them at all. Thinks they look like just big brown spiders. They find them boring. I just, I'm in awe of the size. And I've spoken to many people too. They've said there's just something about the mass, how massive these guys are. So love them. I'm again, I have no Sturmy right now. My mature male passed away. My next step is going to be getting Sturmy because I do want all three species. And I do want to kind of compare the sizes because the other thing that's discussed quite a bit is which one is truly the biggest spider. There are, there's a lot of evidence out there to back up the apophysis, although the more leggier of the three tend to get larger. I know somebody had a picture of a male and I tried to find it last night and I couldn't find it, but it was a male apophysis. I believe it was right around 12 inches long. It was huge, huge, huge spider. So there again, as far as Sturmy and Blondie, when people ask me which one to pick, pick whichever one you're comfortable getting. If one's cheaper than the other, pick it up. That would be my, you're not going to be disappointed with either. You're not going to know for the majority of people out there, I could show you an adult Blondie and adult Sturmy and you wouldn't even barely know the difference. You would not be able to go, oh, that's obviously the Blondie. I think people get hung up on the fact that the Blondie is called the quote unquote true Goliath bird eater when the Sturmy is almost just as big, if not bigger, if not stockier. So don't get caught up in all that. Both of them are awesome. And an apophysis, you get something that's a little different than all of them. And oh, to recognize slings, apophysis, have the pink feet on all of their feet. They will, so when you get a baby apophysis, they will have the pink feet 
on all their legs, all eight legs. The Sturmy have the pink feet on the first two sets of legs, so the front, and that's a good way if somebody tries to sell you one that's an apophysis as a sling and it doesn't have all those pink feet, that's a good way to tell. And the Blondie doesn't have pink feet at all. I think that one's right. Hopefully I'll listen back to this one afterwards and I won't be cringing because I said it wrong. But Apophysis, I just have a picture of the Apophysis. And I know that's how, when I got the one that I thought was Apophysis at first, I remember there was two different ones. There was one I bought as Apophysis that was like a three-inch sexed uh, female. And that one ended up being a Sturmy. But then I also was looking at slings. And I had somebody send me the pictures of the slings. And they only had the blonde on the front feet. And I was like, nope, that's a Sturmy. And I've had, I get a lot of people... That will send me photos of spiders and go, they're selling this as a blondie and you see the pink feet and it's like, no, that's not a blondie or they're selling this as apophysis and you look and it's only got the pink on the front and you're like, no, not apophysis. So that's something to know that if you're looking at slings or whatnot, it's a good way to tell because pet stores confuse these guys all the time and they found out, I think, that apophysis commands even more money than the blondie. So now they're trying to say everything's apophysis. Just be aware when you go out and shop, make sure you don't get taken. They're beautiful spiders regardless and and worth a good deal of money, but if you spend two hundred bucks or one hundred and fifty bucks for something you think is apophysis, to find out it's the much less expensive Sturmy, that kind of hurts. So that should do it for this one. Hopefully that you found some good information there. And again, I love these guys. I can't wait to grow them up. And we're seriously, legitimately looking at a new house now. Or Billy and I were talking about you know the fact that we we're going to move, and part of it's because I really want a bigger exotics room. We we love this house we're in, but it's smaller. It's an older house. The rooms are smaller, and I just really have this dream of having this big, beautiful exotics room because I, I see other people out there that have their whole basements or you know these huge rooms or you know you got people that actually rent space and set up their stuff. I want it in my house, but I want a huge exotics room that I can kind of, especially when I do my videos, walk around and show things off in. And I want to be able to keep some of these larger species and put them in big, awesome display cases, uh, cages, and enclosures so I can show them off. And I'm going to need more room for that. So we'll see how that one goes. But anyway. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you want to check out some videos, you can check out YouTube. I obviously have a YouTube channel. You can also check out the website, thomasbigspiders.com. I do hope everyone is doing well, and I will catch you all next time.